Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke Sunday Forum. It's Absalom Jones Sunday. It is uh, Transfiguration Sunday. It's the Sunday that wraps up Epiphany. Uh, it's the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. And uh, I could have no better conversational partner than the Dr. Catherine Meeks. Dr. Meeks is a friend of longstanding, she and I have uh, been friends and colleagues since 1974. And uh, we've had a relationship that was based in candor and mutual respect and affection uh, for all these years. And it is so important to me to be able to um, give thanks to God for the fact that she and I are having some of our elder years together in the same city of Atlanta. And I've been thanking God for that ever since I became the interim rector of St. Luke's. Nevertheless, uh, she and I uh, touch base with one another from time to time, catch up with one another and say, um, how are you doing? And did you see that? And those kinds of questions that good friends do. Um, she is the executive director of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Reconciliation, Racial Healing, uh, Racial Transformation. I like to add all of those, but she'll correct us in terms of getting to be precise in just a second. But for right now, let me just stop and welcome you, Dr. Catherine Meeks, to the forum. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here. And uh, the people of St. Luke's love you. And I'm so glad that you're willing to give us some more time. Well, I love them too. We've spent a lot of time together. And I yeah. keep thinking people will get tired of hearing me. But and being with me, but they don't, and I don't ever tire of them. So it's no. wonderful. No, St. Luke's people love you and love your wisdom and love your work. So um, I'm really, really glad that we have this time together. So um, everybody, I, I, I called Catherine or she called me, it happens. And uh, one way or the other, almost weekly, and we were catching up and I said, oh, Catherine, let's talk about that in forum. So she graciously agreed, uh, we're taping this on a Thursday before we air it on Sunday. And um, then I looked at my calendar as I said, oh my gosh, we're celebrating Absalom Jones <laughs> on the day that Catherine and I are airing our forum. So we have to start with, uh, with talking about Absalom Jones, Saint Absalom Jones. Yes. So Catherine, You've been attracted to Absalom Jones and his inspiring qualities for a while. Can you tell us why? Well, the most important thing about Absalom Jones for me is his example of perseverance. I think that his being willing to take all those years to, first of all, even as a little kid to, to know that he needed to be educated and to work on that. I mean, the perseverance that it took to even to do that and then to become a free person and then to become a priest. I mean, everything he did required him great uh, investment of perseverance. And if, if I had to sum up how I see the, the life I lead and the work I do and the challenge in front of me, if I had to sum it up in a word, it would be persevere. 
And so I really do identify with that. And then the courage and the vision, the, the, the be, to be able, you have to have courage and vision to persevere, I think, anyway. So those are qualities that, that I think are so critical in terms of just keeping your head up above the water and not getting into despair. And Absalom Jones is such a great example of that. I just read the other day that the reason why so many people were attracted to him was because he visited the parishioners so much and he had such a wonderful manner about him. And to have to have all those struggles that he was up against, and yet to have that said of him, that he means that he was able to keep balance and keep himself clear about who he needed to be. So for those reasons, he's especially important to all of us, but I feel just like um, we're kindred souls because yeah. of that. Yeah, that that's really true because you you yourself incarnate that pastoral dimension, as well as the prophetic dimension, as well as the priestly dimension, and all three of those are interwoven into your work and into the Absalom Jones Center. Before we leave him and talk about the center uh, briefly, um, let's just for the historic purposes uh, remind ourselves that. He, his activity was around Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, he founded the first African-American Episcopal Church mm -hmm. that's still going very, very strong, St. Right. Thomas, mm -hmm. where you can go and really have a wonderful diet of worship and praise and music, et cetera, to mm -hmm. this day. Um, but tell us, remind us of the kind of the courageous particularities of how that church got founded uh, after what happened happened in the other church where he was. Well, they, he and Richard Allen were good friends and Richard Allen, some, some people listening will know, uh, is the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal denomination. They were really good friends and they, um, the decided they, they were thrown out of the church where they were going when they were they the white people didn't want them to be there and so they were thrown out and 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 uh alan decided that it wasn't that he couldn't be a part of a group like that and absalom jones decided to to stick with being an episcopalian and, and they founded the uh, St. Thomas Church. And by the way, his bones are there and in, in, he's buried there at, at St. Thomas, which is wonderful as well, I think. And then, you know, it took him, even after the church was founded, it had no voting privileges. It had no standing for a, a good long while. And to think about that, I mean, people need to think about that for a few minutes that, the, here these people are who are Christians and because they're black, they're being treated like second, third, fourth class people by the Episcopal church. And that's a part of the legacy of the Episcopal church. And we, we need to not lose sight of that fact too, as we uh, deal with the 21st century, that this was our behavior then. And we see too many remnants of it even still. Yeah. So, you are the head of this diocesan-based but nationally serving mm -hmm. center about racism. Mm -hmm. I 
it's, this is a twofold question. Why did you and your circle of advisors and supporters name it after Absalom Jones? And then what is its mission? How does it differ from your run-of-the-mill dismantling racism agency? Well, first of all, we, we the, the center inherited its name because the Absalom Jones Center for um, Campus Ministry preceded us and was that's what the building was. That's what it had been for years. And But they had gone to part-time campus ministry. And so the building really wasn't being used that much. And Bishop Wright decided that this would be a great space for us to occupy when we started the center. And so it had made perfect sense to me that we would be called the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing rather than finding another name or trying to change the, have the have the uh, center be housed in the building called Absalom Jones, but called the center something else didn't, didn't really make sense. And so it, it made perfect sense to take his name and then just say, we are the Center for Racial Healing. And, and um, the, the, uh, the, the thing that makes us different is our understanding that this work is about spiritual formation it is not about social justice. It is not about um, politics. It is about following Jesus Christ. It is about being the church. It is about spiritual formation, all of it. And when people get that really straight in their heads, it will make a huge difference because we will stop trying to avoid it by calling it political, social justice, which means I can do it if I feel like it and I don't have to do it if I don't want to. If it's about your spiritual formation, if it's about following Jesus and you claim you wanna follow Jesus, then it becomes something that's mandated for you that you should be doing because you want to be pleasing to God and not because you wanna be politically correct. So our center has that focus and we reimagined the Dismantling Racism Training to become Eucharist-centered training where the Eucharist is incorporated in the training day to make sure that people understood how important we thought spiritual formation was for this work. And it's under that umbrella that we do this work. And so between the Eucharist and the baptismal covenant, that's where that's where you have got to have this work be situated and that's what the center does and it's been transformative it has caused people to see the, themselves differently the work has grown in amazing ways because we made that shift because we started putting the emphasis where it needed to be and i'm so grateful that that i have the opportunity to be the the person who's shepherding this and to have the chance to use my imagination in this way to reimagine this work. So, because I think it, it, it's got to be positioned in some place other than just sociological, political, uh, you know, uh, let's be correct. All, all that, all those are good things, but they don't get at the, the capacity that we've got to develop to deconstruct the, the foundation that we have built this uh, um, system, the racist system up on, it can't be deconstructed by just 
an analysis or I wish we could be different or politics or any of those things. It's going to take the, the kind of uh, excavation that the Holy Spirit does to really change us. And, I, and so and that's what we're about. And, and that's what we will always be about. I love the fact that um, one of your favorite passages of scripture is Jesus asking the man who's been at the pool of Siloam for ages, do you want to be healed? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's the question. That's the question for us individually. That's the question for the church. That's the question for the country. And, and it's my, when I, when I ask myself that question, I'm always answering yes. And then let me see then what's required of me. I hope and pray that when the church asks, asks that question, that its answer is yes. I'm pretty certain that the country is not there, is not ready to say yes to that question. And it's, and I think we, part of our work is to move us to the place of being able to say, yes, we want to be well. And, and then start exploring what, well, then what will it take? But in the church of Jesus Christ, we best be trying to figure out how to say, yes, we want to be well. Yeah, we'll talk about the, the country and the last set of questions I posed to you in this conversation. But for right now, I want just to go back to the word mandate. I love um, the fact that Maundy Thursday comes from the word mandatum which is the command to love. And I, I'm glad you invoked uh, Bishop Wright earlier. In a conversation I had with him recently in this forum, he, um, I, I call his theology uh, justice love theology. And he says, you just can't follow love. Um, you can't follow Jesus. You can't follow God mm -hmm. as love unless you're willing to give up three S's smallness, separateness, and superiority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the whole idea of our healing is about uh, giving up those three S's. Racial healing is about that. Yes, I, I absolutely believe that because God ex expects us to be much bigger and more expansive than we often expect ourselves to be, so that when, when we decide that we're gonna be really intentional about trying to allow God to disrupt us, turn us upside down, transform us, make us into who God wants us to be, which enlarges us, that then we do have to let go. We have to let go of holding on to the, the limitations and superior, feeling that you're superior is a limitation because then you shut out other people and you shut out the possibility of actually enlarging yourself and maybe even encountering people that are larger than you because yeah. you've already decided that you're the biggest thing in the universe. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that, that, that Bishop Rob is absolutely on target with that. I don't think it's possible to follow love and not be interested in justice. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it just happens. It, you, you, it's, you just can't. It's like if you're eating salt, you're going to be thirsty. It's just yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Another one of the fun things, that, not fun things, inspiring things that he says is that love is interested in doing away with everything that's not justice. Mm 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Beeks, you and I are talking in a series of conversations I'm having um, uh, in January, February, in which I'm asking two questions. Um, one is, where are we now? And the other is, where do we go from here? <clears throat> the second question, where do we go from here, as you well know, is uh, resonant with Dr. King's last mm -hmm. book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. Um, and where are we now is in reference to um, really historic moments that this country has experienced in the changing of uh, one administration to the other, which turned out not to be a peaceful transition of power mm -hmm. because we had an insurrection, a very violent one, a very lethal one on the Capitol grounds, and we saw things that we never expected to see there. So what I'd like to do is pose those two questions to you now, and you can answer them however you want to, you separately or um, put them together, but where are we now? And then where do we go from here? Well, I, you know, I think we're, I think we're at a, um, a, a frontier that we, that we, and, and a frontier where it, the, when I, the, the imagery that comes to my mind is standing it on a, like a edge here, that's a frontier and there's an invitation that's being handed to us. But in order to get to it, there's a, there's a big space, there's a chasm, a bit of a chasm between where we are and getting to the other space that we need to get to. So it's, it's sort of like the, the moment with the trapeze artist when you gotta let go of the bar in order to catch the next one. And if you don't let go, you're gonna not make it and you could let go and still not make it. So I think the jury is out on, not, not in yet on whether what we'll do, but I hope we will say yes to the invitation to embrace the frontier. I, I, I think COVID, I, I see COVID, I see Donald Trump standing in front of St. John's Episcopal Church as concrete evidence of the invitation to embrace a new frontier as a nation, as, as individuals uh, collectively, we, we as a nation have pretended to be something that we are not. And God is just not happy with pretense. And so I think that part of what happens is that after a while, if you keep pretending to be something, you get an opportunity to become it. And so we are, I think, being asked to, to interrogate ourselves and to see how lacking we are in terms of being this uh, ideal that we set up for ourselves. I mean, a place where we hold the truth that everybody is created, everybody's created equal. It's, it's such a joke in a place where we had slaves and, and, and genocide and all kinds of things. So, but you, but you don't get to just feel sorry for yourself you can actually do something about that. You can actually be different. You can actually get well. And so here is the invitation. Do you want to go down a different road? And I hope that 500,000 plus uh, dead sisters and brothers in this country and an insurrection and all of the, the uh, nastiness that we have put out toward each other will help us to know that's not who we want to be. That, we, that we, we have a chance, we have an opportunity, 
we have an invitation, we have the resources, and we and now we have to decide what will we do with them. Um, I oftentimes um, need to stop these conversations and just breathe deeply. Um, and I hope you won't be offended by my wanting to do that after that thought. Um, let me just feed back to you. Um, I mean, we're going to come back to these two questions because you haven't exhausted them yet by any means. But I, I just want to feed back to you what you just said and then add a little dimension to that. Um, I'm, I'm so impressed with your naming it a new frontier of moving from pretense to authenticity mm -hmm. about uh, a central value of this country and uh, the fact that it hasn't been. And um, that's what James Baldwin called the lie mm -hmm. um, that uh, we claim that everyone is created equal and we did not live that out mm -hmm. and that the jury is still out. Mm -hmm. And your prayer and hope is that 500,000 COVID deaths plus an insurrection that had some additional violent deaths and a whole bunch of religiously endorsed violence, which is what has me so upset um, that you're hoping that the verdict is going to be that we do want to get well. Right. Absolutely. Yes. So I've got that right. Um, mm -hmm. We um, we've added um, in our conversations on these Sundays um, a couple of well, well, a concept in our vocabulary that Diana Butler Bass introduced us to, and she's saying that we are in a state of liminality, mm -hmm. a liminal space. And I thought of that when you used the word frontier, mm -hmm. because uh, she told us that lemon means threshold. Right. Um, that, that, and then Arundhati Roy has talked about the pandemic as portal. And uh, many people have talked about the fact that we are in a birth canal. Um, I just, a real, a, and people have been kind of saying, ah, the liminal space thing is helping me understand why I feel kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. Is because yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm in one world, I'm not in one world versus another. I'm in, in between. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts about that before I go mm -hmm. back to our other questions? Well, the, the lovely notion of uh, you're not what you, you you're not, where you were and you're not where you're going to be, right. but you're somewhere exactly. and it's difficult to even name what somewhere is. Yeah. So, and I think that the fact that we have been, that it's been so hard for us to name this space has contributed to some of the craziness that's that we've seen the, yeah. during this time. But the more we can name it, the more, and, and name it as a, as a gift as an invitation, as a positive thing in the midst of a lot of death and chaos, then the better off we will be. When we just, you know, if you just wanna be aggravated, then it doesn't get you very far. But if you wanna see this as a disturbance, a disruption that's, in, that's inviting me down to a new road, to a new place inside myself, 
and inside the church and inside the country and all of that, it begins to, to have some meaning that it doesn't have otherwise. And I think a lot of people don't see any meaning in this time, which is, which is not helpful because if you just see it as an aggravation and you're just hoping we can hurry up and get back to normal, whatever normal we, we whatever we think normal was, which we're not going back. There's not gonna go, you can't go back to not having 500,000 plus dead people and a, and a capital insurrection and the vitriol that we have spewed out of our mouths and hearts onto each other. You cannot just say, oh, well, that's, that's that. So let's just go on. You can't do that. You, you've got to be somebody different. And um, I do want to, um, I didn't, I, I had planned to say this, Dr. Meeks, when I introduced you, but I, for, I failed to just invoke it. And that is that you are a Jungian yeah. in perspective. In addition to being a prophetic Christian, you have the wealth of Carl Jung's thinking in your own because you've been a student of Carl Jung for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So I just want to note that. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about um, this new being on the frontier as a disturbing gift mm -hmm. that is an, can be a new place, not just an aggravation. And that it's so frustration to turn frustrating to turn into aggravation because the essence of aggravation is saying, "Oh, I want to get over this and go back to the way it was." Mm -hmm. And there are lots of people who do want to do that. Yeah, and a lot of them are called Episcopalians. Yes, and we need to we need to get over that. We need to leave that. That needs to be one of the first steps we take toward saying yes to the invitation. Yeah. is to realize an invitation is in front of me that I have to make a decision about it. I don't, right. I, I don't necessarily have to do anything great, but I have to accept that I don't get to go back to where I was. Yeah. It's like, you know, if they tore your house down, you can't go back and live in it because it's right. gone. And yeah. the house we were living in is gone. Yeah. That house pre-COVID is gone. I don't care how you look at it, it's gone. And, and a part of why people are so distressed, I think, about the capital um, invasion is that it was, a, it was such a visible tearing the house down. It was, it's almost like, you know, I do a lot of dream work. And if you, if you have a recurring dream that you ignore over and over, eventually you'll have a super, super set of nightmares because the dream energy will step itself up to get your attention. And it's almost as if in some ways in this country, COVID wasn't even really enough, that we, that we needed another rendition, another iteration of how much work we've got to do. And, and I watch people just um, coming unglued about the Capitol. I am very distressed that those people did what they did. They all need to go to prison. But they also were very bunch, a bunch of very afraid, sad people to me, even though I think they all do need to go to prison for what they did. But the capital is not me. I mean, it is not the, it is not the end of the world. It is not God. I mean, we, 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 but, it, but you would think sometimes that that was the case. And so I think it was just another, here's another, uh, another invitation, you know, get, 
get your get yourself in the right place so that your hope is grounded in the right things and your sense of yourself is grounded somewhere other than this place. I mean, for me as a black woman, if my hope is grounded in the capital, I'm pretty, I'm in pretty bad shape, actually, because when it was put there, I, I wasn't being considered. And so maybe that's part of the reason why I can be, yes, I'm disturbed. I don't want tyranny in the country, but it's not like I, I'm, I'm not, my core has not been breached. You Got know, it. the capital was breached, but my core has not been breached. God is still at the core. And I think we have to, I think we're being invited to reevaluate where our core foundations are. And COVID has shown us a lot. And now this political unrest shows us a lot more. And if we were really paying attention, we could have known some of these things anyway, but we chose not to we chose to try not to know them. And I'm and I'm particularly interested in us as Episcopalians paying attention. I mean, we 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 claim a, a, a level of awareness and awake of being awake and having resources and being committed and all of that. And and so part of what comes with that is consciousness and paying attention and owning what you need to own rather than trying to put your head in the sand or trying to name it something else and trying to see how you can get around it. But there's no way to get around all of this. We got to go through it. And we'll either go through it and learn something or we'll just go through it and be shattered by it. And I'm hoping that we've got sense enough to really want to be healed and, and, and transformed and reformed so that we can be closer to who God wants us to be. I really appreciate your talking both about uh, where we are as a country and also where we are as a denomination. Yeah. Um, very powerful. Well, what about, what about the question, Catherine, about where do we go from here? Uh, yeah. it's, it's implied by what you've been saying, mm -hmm. but gosh, what a powerful book in which Dr. King said that the choices are between chaos and community. Anything you want to say having to do with either the question apart from Dr. King or Dr. King's thought thinking about it? Well, I think his I think that that Dr. King's assessment is still just it could have been made today about this present moment. I think we we haven't what I what I have been saying, the center is launching a, a PR campaign called Let's Get Well in honor of Reverend Murphy Davis that many people who would hear this uh, conversation will will know. Um, we are launching that initiative because I see us sitting right on the brink of wanting to have a civil war. I think that there are many people who would love to have a bloody war with dead bodies in the street because they are that disturbed and distressed and fearful and and they think that would make them feel better that would satisfy them they would be getting closer to what they wanted to have i believe that i i don't think that's the predominant attitude in the country but i do think it's a powerful attitude so i see us on these tracks on this violent track of civil war make me better it's like People have a relative murdered and you want the person executed because you think you'll feel better. But actually after they're executed, you won't feel any better. And you might 
for a little minute, but it, it will go away. And so I believe that we have got to start thinking about wellness. Do again, back to do I want to be healed? And how then, if we start thinking about mind, body, spirit, balance, and wellness, perhaps we can begin a new set of conversations, a new focus. Haven't we need to shift our focus? I really think we've got to shift the energy and, and we've got to shift it toward wellness and balance and stop having everybody be so far out on the edges, you screaming at each other and start looking for how we can come to the middle is, which is how you find balance. So if we can balance mind, body, spirit, if we can balance ourselves as a nation, we have this lovely Joe Biden, bless his heart, with the sense of that, who's gone through hell and high water, and he understands that, that you have to be ready to, to come to the middle. But it's gonna take more than him and his spirit to get us there. All of us are gonna have to get on this bandwagon. So I'm, I'm being very evangelistic about wellness and saying that we're gonna give wellness a press agent, which means that wellness, we want wellness to become a household word. Want people to start thinking about it, talking about it, seeing it as a valuable thing, understanding it better, looking at themselves to see what else do I need to do so I can have a bit greater sense of being well, being balanced, being physically, uh, psychologically, spiritually, if you can slash if you want to, and mentally, uh, in balance with myself so that every wind that comes by doesn't blow me somewhere that you know so I can I can see the stuff that's wrong out there and still have a sense of myself and an understanding that God is still alive and that and that this isn't going to take me off the ledge because I think the fear the fear factor has just gone completely off the rails in this country and then it's been layered over with just the um, neurosis. I mean, there's, we're just a neurotic, we're a bunch of neurotic people that aren't getting our neurosis treated in any good way. So then we start making projections and, and these are my enemies. And if I get them killed, I'll be better. And all of that is just so not so. I mean, we could if, if we woke up in the morning and all the enemies were gone, as we have defined them, we would still have work to do. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. important to to not forget that. So I want to now invoke um, what has been disturbing me, and that I sent to you this morning mm -hmm. after hearing it on national public radio, and I'm just going to read from some notes that I've taken from the article that I sent you. Um, but this is a report that came out from the American Enterprise Institute yesterday. And uh, it said three in 10 Americans. Okay, let's just stop and say that's a third mm -hmm. of the country. Okay, mm -hmm. three in 10 Americans said yes to this statement. If elected leaders will not protect America, the people must do it themselves, even if it requires violent actions. Mm -hmm. And then what they were talking about in terms of protecting America is this. 
the traditional American way of life mm -hmm. is disappearing so fast mm -hmm. that we may have to use force mm -hmm. to save it. Mm -hmm. Could you please address that, my friend? Well, so the first thing that occurs to me is that the, the, um, the traditional way of life in America is rooted in systemic racism. And these are white folks talking about losing their position as uh, superior, their positions of superiority. Because in the first place, in another 10 to 15 years, this country is not gonna be majority white. And no matter what they do, even if they burn down the Capitol and the White House and all that other stuff that we are so invested in, it's still gonna be not a, a predominantly white place. And so, so, the, so for me, the, the, the code, the, that's almost code language for we're, white folks are losing their place in the world and we've got to do some in this country and we've got to do something to restore it, restore it. And if violence is necessary, we're willing to be violent because after all, it's it, your whole life is at stake. Their whole lives are not at stake in the way they're talking about it. What's at stake is they've got to learn how to share. They've got to learn how to be in a country where black and brown people who were never supposed to be free are free and equal and and live in our lives uh, as they as the, those folks who think superiority is the way to be. Th that's really what this is all about. And I think it, it, that kind of resistance to liberation for people of color is at the core of all of this stuff. And we just got to name it and we've got to keep standing up against it. And we've got to keep on saying it is not going to last because it is against love. It's against justice. It's against God. And so if there's somebody sitting, holding their breath, thinking that we can have a, a war and we'll somehow come back and white folks will be running everything again, they're just mistaken. You, you, so violence, you, you know, violence isn't going to get it for you, because there, there is a, there, because black and brown people are not going to live as unfree human beings here or anywhere else. We saw that with George Floyd. We saw for the first time, all over the world, people standing up saying, "Yes, we are." with you in your struggle against the system that keeps doing this to people who are black and who are brown. And so, you, you know, I think that we that coming to grips with that reality is, uh, has got to happen. And I think that the, the, the kind of, uh, the space that we have right now, where it's almost like, I'd rather kill than to have to make this change. I don't want to go on this frontier. I'd rather, I want to stay here. I mean, it's just like back in the day when when white people were killing the native people. We'd rather kill you than to build a bridge across the the the, the chasm that we have here between each other. So, and that's why the church is so. The church has got to be has got to wake up. I mean, we have got to be so vigilant. We have got to be so impatient with the racism and the hiding and the uh, trying to clean it up and make it look right. We've got to be standing against that every second because it's our job as people of faith 
to say, you, you can actually do this. You can cross this chasm to, to, to brother and sisterhood with people who are black and brown and you can live to tell about it. You can actually learn how not to have to have a superiority attitude. You can actually learn that there is enough in this universe to support everybody. And you, and you can also come to realize that God is bigger than all of us. And so I just think that we're up against it and we are going to have to, as Dr. King said, we are going to have to learn how to live together as sisters and brothers or perish together as fools. And he said that whenever that book was written and, and here we are right now in 2021 and truer words could not be spoken. We were watching ourselves, you know, do we want to be all dead in the street or do we want to say well let's see here maybe we've got some things we share in common maybe we can figure out how to care about one another maybe i don't really have to have the entire house and let you sleep outdoors in the snow maybe i could let you have a room and be all right with that you know i'm living in my thirty thousand square foot house i, I won't ever know you're here I mean, that's kind of the way it is, you know? Maybe we could try some of that. Maybe, we, maybe we've maybe we got, I believe that the, that the possibilities are there and we have got to be vigilant in holding up the, the, the banner to say, there are other ways to get to, you're not having to live in fear and, and carry on the way you're, you're behaving. That's a very hopeful position to take. Yeah. It's called following God who is bigger than me and who, who has a better plan. And if I can just keep being faithful to listening to that and trying to catch glimpses of it and live into a little bit of it, then it, I can make a difference. And if I don't, if I'm wrong, then I'd rather die standing up for this than to die standing up for death. Right. Being a person of hope, mm. seeing what you've seen mm. and being aware of what you are aware in the present moment. I would love it, Catherine, and I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this question. I would love it if you would talk a little bit about the inspiration of your hope. Now, I know you to be a person who has some photographs of people on your walls. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that you have those people hanging on your walls because when you look at those photographs, they give you inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly, you can answer this question however you want to. What are your inspirational resources for hope. But I'm, I'm really curious about your shrines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I tell you what, um, you know, I love, I love the 11th chapter of Hebrews because of that whole thing about having a cloud of witnesses. And it took me a good little while as a Christian to realize that, that the witnesses didn't stop with the Hebrews, that I had to think about, well, who are my witnesses now? And I mean, some of those folks that are listed there, of course, are. But, but, but uh, Ida B. Wells, who who is uh, right here 
beside my desk and, and also on my bookshelf and on my wall at my house and at my office and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and uh, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, Mary McLeod Bethune and my mother, they're all there as part of my cloud of witnesses. And I, I look at myself and I look at the world and I look at where I've been and who I am and what I have, what God has done in my life. And I'm encouraged by that, but I'm most encouraged by the courage and fortitude, the legacy of that from those, from those women and, and many others that, that are, are not on my wall. But the, the and, and I say to myself all the time, if, if Harriet Tubman, who had to sell food, even though she was a scout for the Union Army, they didn't give her food. She had to sell, sell food to the soldiers in order to eat herself. If, if she were living under those kind of dire circumstances and she could still have the faith to keep on doing what she did to liberate black people, what is going to be my excuse for not doing what I need to do? And, and Ida B. Wells, who had a, a bounty on her head for most of her life because she spoke out and stood up against uh, lynching. And my mother, who spent 18 years trying to get a bachelor's degree. My mother went to college. My mother graduated from college the same year that I graduated from high school. And she spent all of my life from one to 18 trying to get her degree. Now, if I can look at that kind of perseverance, that kind of uh, fortitude, that kind of determination that life can be better because you deserve it to be better and because God wants it to be better for you, then if I can look at that and not do my best and not have hope, then there's something really wrong with me. And thank God for grace that makes me able to take a look at it and say, absolutely. I mean, I can do this. Yeah, so yeah, it's hard and people have been racist and you know, and the world's in a mess, but the world's always been in a mess and probably always will be. But that doesn't mean that all of these things that we need to be trying to address are not in front of us for us to do something about it. I mean, that's, we're supposed to be doing, using these skills and resources and the faith we have and the folks up on whose shoulders we stand to keep us going. So that's it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't, I'm not gonna live in despair. I'm not gonna live in hopelessness. I'm not gonna live in how bad it is. I'm gonna live in what can I do? I'm going to live in, I, I, I tell my staff, I don't, don't spend too much time telling me why we can't do something. You know, spend most of your time figuring out how to do it. Because if you, you know, there's some things you can't do and eventually you just have to accept that. But there's a long list of what you can do before you get to what you can't do. And, and so don't start out scaring yourself I, I, because God is bigger than me. And I see that every day. And every time I start, you know, with this wellness campaign, I'm thinking, you're always in over your head. Are you crazy? Do you just have to always be in over your head? 
And then something wonderful will happen that reaffirms for me, yeah, you're supposed to be in over your head because then God can show up and do what only God can do. And then you you get to take your little self and go with that and, and keep on working. And then when you get to another rough spot and you, I'm in over my head, where do I go? Then here comes another uh, infusion of that amazing energy that says, keep going, keep going because there are more resources out there for good than there are for evil. And, and I'm sticking to that. I'm breathing deep. <laughs> I'm breathing deep. Taking it in. Yeah. Taking it in. That's quite a witness. Yeah, well, day by day, inch by inch. I get it. I yeah. get it. One step at a time. I got it. Yeah. So, Dr. Catherine Meeks, I've asked you uh, a lot of questions. And one of the things I, I mean, you run a very important institution and agency. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want to say thank you, ma'am, before giving you an opportunity to uh, tell us where we can find out about the programming. Mm -hmm. And also for you to say anything else that I have not asked you that I should have asked you about yourself, your mission and Absalom Jones Center? Well, um, the, the, I think the most important thing that I would wanna say is that to invite people to centerforracialhealing.org. That's our website. We have a lovely new website that's inclusive and working on uh, really trying to be much more equitable toward our Latinx sisters and brothers and native uh, sisters and brothers of uh, Asian American sisters and brothers, as well as African American. So they're virtual, we have a virtual resource center for all of those groups and we're working on trying to be really equitable in the materials that are there and to really model what it would look like to try to act like we believe everybody ought to be treated as equal human beings and, and folks who God loves dearly. So I would invite people to visit the website. I would invite people to uh, to, to see how the, what, whatever is there that can be helpful to them. But I would also invite, and I also invite people to make donations to the center. I mean, we, we operate on donations. I mean, we have, we, we don't have a, a you know, a, a trust fund somewhere. Uh, we have to raise money. So, so making donations would be a wonderful thing as well to help us. And then to just be the, in your own circle, wherever your sphere of influence is, to just every day work to be a half a shade braver, just a half a shade braver. You know, that, that would be one of the greatest gifts you can give to support this work. Because the work is, the work, the work cannot be done by us. All we can do is be catalyst, you know, and actually the real work is becoming the church, the church that Jesus is, is um, wants us to be. So every time any of us are half a shade braver, stand up a little taller, speak up a little louder, we help to free up energy that helps to create the kingdom in a, in a new way. And, and that is the way you help the center. My biggest dream for the center is that the day would come that it would be unnecessary because the church would be doing what it was supposed to. 
and that when we would not be having centers and and uh, for uh, um, commissions and and clubs and whatever to do the work that we would be doing the church's work and if we were doing the church's work we would be addressing racism and classism and sexism and all of those things because that's what the church is about is eradicating all of that stuff so that we can all be together as God's family and there's only one God and only one family and we just you know if we once that's straight in your head the rest of it is a whole lot easier so so go to our center at website and be encouraged to be the the most uh courageous you can be and go over and over if it can help you and 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 use it as a resource i do want to underscore that you have just stated that the center is yes about healing individuals it is also about healing the church mm -hmm. and is also about healing the culture. Mm -hmm. So you're not just focused on hyper individualism. No. You are mm -hmm. saying that if the church becomes involved in removing injustice or any impediment to love, then we won't have to have centers like yours. Anymore. That's right. And wouldn't that be a fantastic day to wake up and say, now the church is functioning. We are doing what, what Jesus Christ did. Uh, you know, we're following Jesus Christ. We're really following Jesus Christ. And we don't need all these extraneous things. We just are loving people and being open and trying to heal people and help people live the best life they could live. Wouldn't that be, that, that, that'll be a great day, a great day. I'm uh, I'm honored to be your friend and to be a part of your transforming the church and trans thus transforming the world. So thanks for being with us today, Catherine. Thank I really so, appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, Ed. And you know, I'm I mean, we've been buddies a long time, and I, it's it's great to have uh, white people in my life who are honest and about the history, about their own issues and who will walk alongside me and be supportive and caring and we can tell each other the truth. That's some, that is such a gift and I'm so grateful. Thank you. I love that about our friendship that we can tell one another the truth and that you can encourage me to be a half a shade braver. Yes, um, yes, yes. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank you all for joining us on this wonderful Absalom Jones Sunday with Dr. Catherine Meeks. Hope you have a great week and join us next, next week for a continuation of the questions, where are we now and where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. Goodbye.